Hello, and welcome to Who Runs That? I'm Seth Stevenson. Today on the show, we'll be talking about NerdWallet, an online service that lets you comparison shop for financial stuff like credit card offers, mortgages, and insurance policies. Joining us is CEO and founder Tim Chen. In our conversation, Tim talks about founding the company as a result of trying to help his sister find the best credit card offer for her, about how millennials think about money choices, and about what he thinks the U.S. government should be doing when it comes to consumer financial protection. After the break, Tim Chen, founder and CEO of NerdWallet. Hello, and welcome to Who Runs That? Today, we'll be talking about NerdWallet, the personal finance advice website. And with us is Tim Chen, founder and CEO of NerdWallet. Tim, welcome to the show. Hi, Seth. Thanks for having me. Uh, My pleasure. So to start off, uh, tell us a little bit about what is NerdWallet? What does it do? Yeah, so uh, NerdWallet helps Americans get more from their money, and uh, we we do this in two ways. Uh, First, we make comparison shopping really easy. Uh, So our website helps you compare all the features of different credit cards, mortgages, insurance policies, loans, all at once. And you can quickly get from thousands of options down to two or three and pick the right one for you. And the second thing we do is we help you stay on top of your money. So our app lets you connect your accounts and your credit score and all that stuff and you know quickly see how much you're spending and how you can um, do better with things like loans or whether you should reshop your insurance. Um, so yeah, money is really complicated and our goal is to really just make it a lot simpler for people. And you know today we, we reach about 100 million people a year. So uh, it's a pretty broadly uh, used service in America. And so you're the founder of NerdWallet. What's the origin story here? How did this begin? Yeah, so um, NerdWallet started with uh, me getting fired (laughs) from my last job. I I used to work on Wall Street. And, uh, you know, my sister asking for help finding a credit card uh, while that was happening. Um, And so uh, it it didn't really start off as a business idea. It started off as a spreadsheet. So I, I, you know, what initially happened is I said, yeah, sure, Kim, let me Google that for you. And I thought I was going to um, hit Google and come back in 30 seconds and give her like a great resource to look at. Um, but I really didn't find that. I found a lot of uh, marketing materials of, of people, you know, trying to sell various products and not any sort of analysis that made sense to me. So um, created a spreadsheet and, I, you know, I've heard this spreadsheet story from um, many other founders out there. But that really turned into a website. And then uh, we quickly realized that, you know, this problem uh, where it's really hard to compare credit cards applies to all financial products. And so we started to branch out from there. And yeah, over time, um, we've continued to evolve. About two years ago, we we really thought that we could, you know, help people beyond just comparison shopping. Uh, We could help them uh, keep track of their money. And so that's been a big push for the last two years. So in the transition from giving advice to your sister to creating this website that could give advice to lots of different kinds of people, when did you start thinking about this as a viable business and and what were the first steps you took to turn it into a business? Yeah, um, that that was actually quite a struggle for the first year or 18 months. I I really wasn't sure if this was a viable business. Um, I I knew it was definitely the way I personally would want to... um, uh, make some of these financial decisions, but the real struggle we had was uh, reaching people. And you know, I, I think a lot of entrepreneurs have this incorrect intuition that if you build it, they will come. I, I think that's actually why you know most entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley fail. Um, what becomes critically important is also um, how do you, how do you get to market? And you know, I, I 
I think it started to really prove out over time when we started getting uh, more and more visitors coming to the site. There's a tipping point when you're not quite profitable yet, but you see the trajectory that it's going on and, and you start to have confidence that uh, the market really has a need for your product. How did you fund this as you were just getting going? Yeah, so, you know, we're, well, I, I guess I was very fortunate that, you know, standing on the backs of what others have done, starting a starting a website has actually become quite inexpensive, even, even 10 years ago. Um, so, you know, it, we weren't starting an airline or a factory where there was a huge upfront capital investment. And, you know, web hosting had started becoming cheaper and all this other stuff. Uh, so it was really self-funded from the start. And that actually proved to become critically important in hindsight because it gave us a lot more flexibility to make decisions that were right for the long term. And I'll give you a quick example of that. Um, you know, early on when we were really struggling to um, define ourselves as a brand, um, you know, I think investors would have pushed us heavily to focus on how we can grow at uh, using any means necessary. And I think where that often leads early stage startups to is to go you know, put their best uh, talent and resources against things like paid marketing, um, as opposed to building a great product. And um, I, I think that kind of starts to lead to this self-fulfilling uh, prophecy in terms of what your product turns out to be. So instead of building a product that's oriented towards your consumers, you start building a product that monetizes really well, for example. Um, and that kind of limits the ceiling of where you can go. So when you're starting out, it's it's you giving this personal financial advice. Were you uniquely qualified to give advice about personal finances? And when you when you started hiring other people to do that, what were you looking for in, in terms of finding people who would be especially good at giving that kind of advice? Yeah, you know, I I wasn't I wasn't. Um, I think I've I, I've I've come to the opinion that it's really about how much you geek out or nerd out on a particular topic. I mean, so for example, let's talk about like you know travel credit cards. I mean, in order to really understand the market, you have to spend quite a bit of time in elbow grease, really understanding all the options out there, um, how it applies to different cities you may live in based on the airport hubs nearby and things like that. And that really requires quite a bit of like, you know, monolithic focus for a long period of time. Most people don't go through that kind of effort. Um, and so I, I really look for that kind of passion uh, when we think about subject matter experts and and I, I guess the other thing to note is that there's just too much out there. Um, there's too many different topics. I mean, everything from college savings funds to retirement funds to tax strategies for all different sorts of people uh, that no one person can really nerd out on so many things. And I think that's really where we ended up over time having subject matter experts covering a lot of different topic areas. There's a lot of websites at this point that offer personal financial advice. So how do you differentiate yourself? What are the ways you, that you feel you're unique? Yeah, so um, there's a lot of different people out there, big and small. I, I think, you know, in terms of the big sites out there, I think I, I point to the way that we spend our money. Um, it's pretty telling. Uh, so most of our expenses actually go towards product development. Um, we've got the journalists, the product managers, the engineers, the product designers, and they're all trying to make money easier to understand. I'd say a lot of our um, biggest competitors uh, spend most of their money on marketing. And so it's, it's kind of a, a different strategy in terms of uh, how you define your place in the market. And yeah, I, I actually think a lot of the, the really niche small guys out there uh, provide a fantastic service that no one else can provide, right? Because um, it's like, you know, you become really specialized in a particular area of personal finance. Um, you spend more time on it. You're going to have more insights than anyone else. 
Um, we try to do that, but there's definitely coverage areas where we're probably not as good as others. What's the business model for NerdWallet? How did, when you got started, how did you think you were going to make money? And, and, and has that been the reality or has that shifted over time? Yeah, you know, it, from the onset, wasn't totally sure um, how we were going to make money. Um, thought that uh, potentially we could make money uh, by uh, making commissions, which I, I think is pretty common on the internet. Um, and that's proven to be true. So we're matchmakers. You know, when a, when a consumer and a financial product are great for each other, uh, we earn a commission. I see it as everyone winning, you know, the consumer, the bank, and us. Um, and the only person that loses out in that equation is the other bank, which was unable to move their inferior product. And I, I think that's a great dynamic, and that's what the Internet does so well. So that's a situation where you are you are making money from a company that you are providing coverage on and reviews of. How do you navigate that? Does that bring up some journalistic dilemmas for you? Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, we think a lot about that. Uh, so compensation never affects the analysis we do. We keep the editorial team uh, independent of that. And so, you know, that's that's been a very important tenant. I mean, think about it from this perspective. We've got, if you look at the number of subject matter experts at NerdWallet who are actually um, owning pieces of the experience, uh, it's over 100 people uh, from product managers to journalists. And if there's a gray area that we create um, for the company to operate in, um, there's no way to ultimately control the quality of the product. And we really fa- will face a deteriorating net promoter score, which we really pride ourselves in. Sorry, a deteriorating what score? Oh, a net promoter score. So um, a lot of product companies uh, think a lot in terms of uh, this one question, would you recommend NerdWallet to a friend and uh, on a scale of 1 to 10? And it, it's a way of calculating you know, how good your uh, promotion metrics are in terms of someone recommending it to a friend. And what are you scoring at? <laughs> well, so internally, we, we measure this and it, it ranges by the products we do. But, you know, company wide, we, we think we're in the 40s. Um, the highest score you can have is 100 and the lowest score you can have is a negative 100. Um, and we're always looking for ways to push that number higher. How is your staff divvied up? What proportion of them are actually writing content for the site? What proportion are coders or designers or doing business development? How do you, how do you divide up that staff? Uh, about a fifth of our staff to a fourth of our staff are um, solely uh, focused on content. And they, they have editorial separation from the business. Um, they're more focused on a mix compared to other newsrooms of evergreen versus new, um, they spend a lot of time refining what we already have um, because things are constantly changing with tax laws or products or things out there. And they do do some coverage of newer stuff. About half our company is, you know, some combination of engineers, product managers, product designers, copywriters. And um, they're focused on a combination of uh, what we internally call shopping experiences as well as member experiences. Um, And, you know, the rest of the staff is uh, helping make this company function well. So, you know, we're about 400 people in total and making quite an investment to product development across the board. You've talked about the site being specifically targeted at millennials, and I wonder what that means in terms of what you cover and how you cover it. Right. Well, so millennials are uh, kind of the bullseye, but we, we do aim to serve everyone. Uh, we reach such a broad group of people that um, we do cover a lot of topics. I mean, so for example, if we write about Medicare elections or something, it's, it's probably going to affect an older uh, cohort of people. 
But I, I would say that millennials are unique in certain ways. Uh, I've, I've spent a lot of time, you know, traveling the country and sitting in on our user research studies and people's living rooms. And um, I, I've noticed, you know, millennials care a lot about authenticity. Uh, millennials care. They're, they're far more open to um, having uh, to connecting their accounts, for example, to a service like NerdWallet and having us help them figure out the, the best moves to make. And, you know, they're also uh, more inclined to comparison shop, I'd say. I mean, a lot of us uh, grew up in a world where, you know, you just took whatever professor you got in college. Um, but millennials grew up with things where they wouldn't choose a class without reading reviews on their professor, right? And it's just a completely different mindset towards uh, what is acceptable in terms of what your financial institution will provide you. Uh, so I've noticed that's quite different too. Have the demographics of who's visiting your, your site changed over time? What, what do they look like in terms of right now, in terms of age and gender and region and all those other things? Yeah, we, you know, I think we um, have a slightly uh, we are pretty average in terms of the American demographic. We do skew slightly younger, uh, slightly more female, and slightly higher income, um, but not not too far from the mean. How do you market yourself? What's the best way that you found to attract new readers? So, so I'll, I'll give you a high level stat. Only about ten percent of credit cards out there are uh, originated or, or signed up for um, through a site like NerdWallet. Uh, 90% of people out there are still doing things where they're responding to direct mail or uh, you know, getting cross-sold by their checking account provider uh, or responding to a TV ad from an issuer. And so those are that, that's what we're competing with. And so in terms of marketing, we really try to put ourselves out there as um, a brand that you know, really gets a lot of uh, references is just really unbiased, easy comparisons uh, for any financial product you may need. And that, that's really built the core of the base today. Is SEO super important for you because it's people who are going online and, and searching like, oh, I wonder what the best credit card for me is. Is, is that uh, sort of a key element for you? Yes. So uh, search is big, uh, both SEO and increasingly SEM. So, and we should define for listeners, SEO is search engine optimization and, and SEM. I'm not even sure I know what that stands for. What's SEM? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure, actually. Probably search <laughs> engine marketing. Um, yeah, it, it means it, basically it, tailoring so that when people go into a search engine like Google, that your site will pop up at the top. That's right. And yeah, surprisingly, like um, channels like TV are actually quite large for us too. Um, you know, I I do think that there there is a, a demographic of people, uh, especially younger millennials, that just naturally turn to Google for everything. And then there's um, definitely for the uh, slightly more uh, gray-haired generation, there's a lot of brand recall that's really important to them as well. So we try to be in many places. I'd imagine that you've gathered a lot of general data about personal finance in America, and I'm wondering if there are any particularly useful insights that you've been able to draw from that. Yeah, I mean, so I think some, for me personally, um, some of the most telling insights have been, you know, the anecdotes I see from one-on-one -on -one conversations in people's living rooms, uh, and, and less so the the aggregated data that you would see out there. And, you know, just some examples of this is like, I actually went into quite a few homes where, um, you know, like people had just gotten married, uh, younger couples, and they were just kind of cruising along and then things weren't working out. And then they, 
you know, high paying jobs, but racking up credit card debt. And then there was a come to Jesus moment where they sat down, put everything into a spreadsheet and then kind of finally got a sense of where they were and what they needed to do. So I, unbelievably, I've, I've probably seen that story like six or seven times firsthand. And that, that kind of like led me to the conclusion that from our product perspective, we really need to make that process as easy and hopefully transparent early on as possible. So, um, you know, we built a product that really lets people quickly do that by just linking up their bank accounts. And then you can quickly get a sense of where all the money go- is going and how your cash flow is. The, the other thing I, I personally uh, observed is that there's quite a split in America. Um, and, you know, internally we call it something else, but I, I'd, I'd rather, I'd say like about half the country is paycheck to paycheck and not feeling a ton of financial security. And, and the other half has a bit of a surplus and um, is thinking about very different things. And the, these two segments have totally different worries, right? And um, being too myopically focused or from one segment, you kind of miss the bigger picture. Um, so an example of an insight that I, I totally missed early on was I thought credit cards were just all about bells and whistles. Like how much of a sign up bonus can I get? Um, how many points can I get for spending in these various categories? What's the annual fee and how do I maximize that equation? And that, that was the first spreadsheet. Um, but for half the population, it's really about will I get approved and what will my credit limit be? And the interest that they care about is not the um, interest rate, but rather what is my monthly interest payment. Um, and really understanding these things can help us build much better products that better serve the needs of those respective uh, demographics. Do you have more people coming to NerdWallet who are looking for the bells and whistles or more people in that category where they're they're looking at that monthly interest payment and whether they can get approved? Definitely the former. Um, and I think, you know, the first four years or so of our existence, we didn't realize that there was a big need for the other segment. Um, And then, you know, so later on, uh, we started adding things like free credit score, as well as coaching based on um, our analysis of your credit report um, to really help people level up there and get access to the best products. And, you know, I had quite this paternalistic view um, before doing a lot of this research thinking like, well, gosh, um, people should just spend less money or not take out credit. But there are actually um, a ton of Americans who face a lot of volatility uh, month to month in both their income and expenses. And they tend to earn more money than they spend in a year. Um, but things will happen month to month, like your kid will have a birthday party or graduation, your pipes will leak, your car will break down, uh, you'll work in a service industry where some months are better than others. And that's where things like a 30% interest rate on a credit card to get you over from one month to another where you know you'll be able to pay it back are a lot more attractive than things like payday loans or overdrafting a bank account. And, you know, just hearing those kinds of stories made me a lot less paternalistic about thinking about what products were right for that group. So that's a big learning for me. What, what is the biggest misconception people have when they're choosing a credit card? What do people get wrong about picking a credit card? Yeah, I'd, I'd say it varies by, by the half of America. Um, uh, there, there were a lot of attitudes by one half about um, credit cards kind of being like free money and that credit line um, being something that, you know, you could pay back over time, but really thought of in terms of a monthly expense rather than, you know, an aggregate cost over time. And then I think like for the people that tend to have a lot more financial choice, people, there actually is this misconception that having too many credit cards or 
uh, needing to close down credit cards you're not using is a positive thing. Um, but those things actually have, so closing down old credit cards actually has a negative impact on your credit score. And often opening additional cards um, will lower your credit utilization um, and tend to have a positive impact on your credit score after a certain period of time. I don't think people should operate just to maximize their credit score by any means, but um, I think those are some pretty common misconceptions. I've heard that before about how closing down a credit card can can hurt your credit score, and that seems silly to me in certain ways. Um, so right now we have this Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that, that recently has been led by people who maybe aren't the strongest proponents of consumer financial protection. And I wonder right. if nerd I wonder if Nerd Wallet takes any kind of corporate position on that kind of thing. Yeah, so it, interestingly, um, I, I was on the consumer advisory board under the the prior CFPB and I, I definitely spoke out when Mulvaney came in and fired us all. <laughs> this um, is Mitt, Mitt and, Mulvaney, this is the the head of the CP, CFPB. Right. He, he was interim head. Um, he's just appointed a, a new person in that position. Um, but yeah, ultimately, I think their job should be consumer protection. Um, you know, I have a lot of opinions on this, but I, I think... Oh, I'd like to hear them all, please. <laughs> Issue opinions. Well, well, okay. So so politics aside, look, there's, there's always going to be a tension between what's right for the consumer and what's right for American business, right? And I guess an, an analogy I think of is... If you have clear, well-enforced rules, everybody wins. It's like in a, in a basketball game, if you have a referee that's calling the game well, the good players will be really happy. And um, I, I think the same occurs with things like regulating payday, right? It's like um, you don't want no regulation because there's no referee for the game and it's just chaos ensues. And the good players actually aren't going to do as well when the game's not officiated well. So I think this notion of deregulation actually doesn't make any sense. There always has to be regulation. Someone has to be calling the game. Um, and then I think in terms of what is good regulation, um, I think it really depends on getting good feedback from people like consumer advocates, banks, and consumers, and really trying to balance uh, those uh, different considerations. And um, I think that the old CFPB was doing a pretty good job there. Although, uh, you know, my one criticism would be that they really erred more on the side of uh, using enforcement as a way of setting rules rather than using the legislative process. Um, but, you know, their, their heart was definitely in the right place. Um, I think the risk of um, going too far in the other direction, though, is then it just feels like a free-for-all for the bad actors and they start to pop up and they don't worry too much about the regulators. And I, I worry that we're going to start heading in that direction and the pendulum is going to swing. Do you think you'll continue to to be involved in, in, and advocate? And, and what, what are the, the sort of the benefits and the risks of being the head of a company and getting involved in these kinds of political questions? Well, I mean, I, I, I don't see it as a, a political issue. I, I've spoken out on both sides um, for the new CFPB. Um, I think that ultimately it comes down to a consumer uh, interest and consumer protection issue. And um, I think that that's a really nonpartisan thing. Okay. So I, I saw that you uh, talking somewhere about how more and more people are looking at NerdWallet on their phones. And that seems like slightly crazy to me to be doing com- complex financial calculations on this tiny little screen typing with your thumbs. Does it surprise you that people will be doing that on their phones? It does. I, you know, 
10 years ago when I started NerdWallet, I never would have expected that to happen. I will say, um, if I were to overgeneralize, um, people do tend to shop uh, on our website and they tend to keep track of their finances on our native app, uh, like our, our you know mobile app. And the distinction there is apps are really good for, you know, like loading up all your info and being able to pull it out and use your thumbprint and see what's going on. Whereas like websites are really good, you know, for sitting down at work in front of your computer, punching in numbers, doing calculations and reading long form content. And so we still do see that general bias, but there's definitely a lot of crossover happening now between the two. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this with more from Tim Chen, founder and CEO of NerdWallet. I want to ask you a few questions about you. Um, so you mentioned that NerdWallet started while you were going through a layoff. And I know that NerdWallet itself laid off a bunch of employees a few years ago. So I wanted to hear from you what kind of thinking went into those layoffs and how did you approach them in terms of like stealing yourself to do that, in terms of having empathy for the people you were laying off, given that you'd, you'd been through a layoff yourself? Yeah. I mean, go, you know, getting let go is really probably the hardest and one of the most defining moments of my life. Um, so it's it's something that um, I, I thought a lot about. Like ultimately, it's about what is right for the consumer and what is right for NerdWallet. And, you know, there's going to be times in every company's history where you realize what you want to do over the next three or five years um, isn't aligned with how you're set up um, today. And oftentimes the amazing work that people have done um, to get the company to where it is, um, isn't going to be right for the next three to five years. And that's ultimately the, the situation we found ourselves in. And it, it was, it was extremely tough, but it was a, the, the really hard thing to do in the short run, but the right thing to do in the long run. I've read that the relationships you had with the people who are managing you, uh, in your previous jobs before you started NerdWallet were sort of a mixed bag, some good, some bad. What were your early thoughts about how you wanted to manage people when you were in charge of things and, and have those ideas evolved over time? <laughs> oh my gosh. I, so, so I came from the, uh, I came from the finance industry and it is a, it is an industry that should not be um, looked to for best management practices. And <laughs> the reason I say that is because it was, a, it was an industry very focused on uh, individualism um, so there was this huge culture around superstars, and there was a very um, monolithic way of defining what a superstar was. It was a, a person who was quantitative, good at certain things, um, et cetera. And, you know, every financial firm we worked at had this culture of, like, superstars and paying egregious amounts of money to the superstars and treating them very poorly. Starting a company is completely different uh, because you're venturing into an unknown space. You're solving complex problems. It's a marathon and not a sprint, and it requires incredible teamwork for you to succeed in the face of a lot of unknowns and a lot of competition. And so it required a complete reframe of what a, what a good team looked like and what a company looks like. And so that was a you know that was something that unfortunately I had to learn through first principles and. Uh, led to some some rocky early years in terms of uh, in terms of managing the company. Um, my mindset has completely shifted today. Um, I I really see a team a diverse set of talents where every person is making every other person better. If my executive team isn't composed of people who are um, coaching me better than me in certain ways, I'm not doing my job right. 
and so it's it's been a it's been a very big transition. If you had to identify the strengths that you, that you have that you're bringing to the table, the sort of superpowers that have helped you get where you are, what would you say they are? Yeah, I I think I I tend to be uh, pretty decent at looking at a diverse set of information and um, synthesizing and cutting through the noise. I ultimately started thinking about it as dumbing things down in a productive way. Um, and it's something I try to try to leverage within the team. I have other members of my team who are exceptional at making groups of people work well together or who are exceptional at things like product or uh, engineering operations. So um, it, it really takes a team. Okay, I'm going to move on to our lightning round. Are you ready? Okay, I am. Let's go. Okay, are there any books or movies that have influenced how you manage people or how you manage an organization? Uh, yes, many. Um, I, I think Creativity Inc., uh, which was about the founding of Pixar, was was quite good. What did you like about that? Um, I think that's really where I first heard about uh, a lot of the notions of, you know, what a safe workspace looks like, why um, candid and constructive disagreement in real time is really critical. And, you know, to this day, candid and constructive is one of our core values at NerdWallet. Okay, meetings. Are you pro or con? How do you run your meetings? Um, I think about it two ways. Uh, Meetings can be, excessive meetings that don't feel productive can be a symptom of a communications architecture that can be improved. Maybe things can be done by email. Maybe a meeting's not necessary anymore. Meetings can also be really useful um, when there's an initiative going on and you've got the um, uh, right group of people who can drive that initiative forward. Meeting at a regular cadence with a strong agenda can be hugely helpful. Um, so, and and I actually am really impressed with companies like Amazon who um, manage to operate at such complexity on so many different areas. And I think, gosh, they must really do meetings well, <laughs> and they they must really have a great internal communications architecture because there's no other way that that's possible than to just have really nailed that. What's the best piece of advice you could give somebody who wants to start their own company? Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) I'd say that anything is possible um, if you have the right people uh, together. So, you know, let's say for some crazy reason, NerdWallet wanted to get into manned space flight. Um, There's a lot of people out there who have done that. And instead of going and hiring a bunch of smart people, I should probably go and hire those people that have done that before. What mistake have you made in the past that you've learned the most from? Uh, too many to count. I'll pick a random one. Um, so you should probably see if people want things before you build them. Um, none of us start off life loving rejection. <laughs> and so I think the mistake a lot of people make is they try to make something really good that they intuitively think people want. Uh, when what they should really do is just draw it out on a napkin and show it to people and see if they get it, see if they'll pay money for it, or see if they'll, uh, they truly value it. Um, and that can save you a lot of time. Our, our limited resource as entrepreneurs is really our time and bandwidth, first and foremost, more than anything else. And so um, I, that, that is a critical part of making the most of your time. If I told you tomorrow that you are fired from NerdWallet, You can't start another company. You can't be an executive again. You can't do anything even remotely related to what you're doing with your life right now. What would you do with your life instead? Okay, so I I think I would either go to medical or culinary school. 
Those um, are I, those are divergent <laughs> paths, Tim. <laughs> They're quite divergent. Um, I, I I just feel like I know so little about the world and how it works, and um, those just seem like totally white space opportunities for me to um, just go and learn more. I, I think that's what really fuels me and keeps me going. Okay, Tim Chen, founder and CEO of NerdWallet. Thank you for coming on the show. All right. Thank you, Seth. That's it for our show. Who Runs That is produced by Cameron Drews. TJ Raphael is the senior producer for Slate Podcasts. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcasts. If you like the show, please rate and review us in the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can email us at whorunsthat at slate.com. I'm Seth Stevenson. Thanks for listening.